On this episode of Last King Podcast, we've got two movies with Knives Out and Ford vs. Ferrari. Hey everybody, welcome to the Last King Podcast. Hey. Just two of us today, it's uh, Shafiq and Eccentric Tom. And it's Mr. Toffee. No, no, it's me, Shafiq, sorry. <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, Mr. Toffee is out on assignment. Uh, I think he's covering the Waifu Pillow Con over at Malaysia's uh, Grand Waifu Pillow Con Fest. So, today we're going to be talking about two films that uh, came out in the span of time of uh, this week. And uh, last week. And last week. Uh, and of course, we're not going to be mentioning Charlie's Angels because... <laughs> That it shit at the box office. Yeah, and then aye, some. Aye, aye. Bloody hell. Uh, but the thing is, the true feminist juggernaut has finally arrived. Frozen 2, which we will also not be reviewing because we're not interested, I guess. Not my, not our demographic, I'm sorry. I don't know. I mean, I'll probably watch it because I kind of enjoyed the first Frozen. But I'm going to wait until uh, all the kids have seen it. So, like, the movie will be relatively quiet. Yeah. That's the thing. Anyway, so <laughs> welcome back to the Last Game Podcast. No more video games for this week. Uh, thank you so much for uh, listening to us rant and rave about uh, Death Stranding and Disco Elysium and the like. Speaking of convoluted storylines and characters where you're not quite sure what their intentions are, uh, Rian Johnson returns from Star Wars. Yes, yeah, so um, <laughs> people had mixed views on The Last Jedi, which to this day people can't seem to agree about it. I mean, like a lot of it is very bad faithy, but hey, whatever. He made a he made the movie, he made his money, and now he can do whatever he wants for the next two films or so. True that, but I don't think he'll have quite the same budget ever again. Probably not, but you know, he got enough to make this little movie. Well. Enough? He got a squant forty million dollars. Hey, you know, by uh, certain standards, that's a lot. Like, imagine if Blumhouse gave you forty million. You think he was ill or something? Not really. Then you'd have to do Get Out too. That would definitely be the budget oh, for to sure. afford the director. And uh, the remaining cast, but I don't think it'll be a get out too. Okay, anyway, uh, so Knives Out is a whodunit. Uh, something... Of the traditional kind. Uh, yeah, I mean, and the thing is, uh, Rian Johnson does do his usual take something familiar and try to reconstruct it in a way that is entirely individualistic and his own. I mean, his personality is all over this. For mm-hmm. fans of uh, movies like Brick and Looper, the stuff he did before Star Wars. I would say uh, this is Rian, John- uh, Rian Johnson returning to what is familiar and I think what he's best known for. For sure, yeah. yeah. And if anything, uh, it was a pleasant experience for me. I mean, my overall consensus before the full review. Uh, I was very entertained by it and I saw some potential. I would say it feels like this is a man who probably after having survived the entire Disney machine and after being spat out and he's now trying to kind of uh, I think this feels like a man who is trying to fall in love with what made him want to make movies where it's like he's not returning to the well but like this is what more like returning to brass tacks yeah in a sense where it's like this is what I like to do and this is what I got uh, known for and I would say it's where him. he's like competing in his element, where he doesn't have to count out to establish canon or to or, b- b- production notes from upon or high, it, or like a gigantic fan base that can be very rough if you don't know how to please them. Uh, Possibly, but, yeah, one of the most vitriolic uh, fan bases. Well, you can't help it; it's been around for decades and generations. Yeah, sir, for sure. Since the seventies, like it's probably one of the hardest fan bases to breach, and the easiest to annoy. Oh yeah. But <laughs> that aside, actually, no, it's. 
Yeah, I would say that is there uh, Star Wars guys, then Lord of the Ring guys, then below that would be probably uh. I think it's Trekkies can be a bit. Uh, Trekkies are less a lot less uh I would say harsh because they're willing to forgive. Well, they've had to do a lot of forgiving over the years. God, especially after uh, the latest season of what was it it's Discovery? That yeah, was Discovery. Terrible! I was so disappointed with it. Uh, I hate to say that I live in an age where fucking Seth MacFarlane's The Orville is a better Star Trek than Star Trek. <laughs> which is quite painful for me. Okay, but anyway, so Rian Johnson, uh, I wouldn't say a return to form, but more like, you know, he's it's like, it's like riding a bike. You just don't forget. You know Absolutely. what I mean? It's him flexing a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to be uh, like not generous, then you could say this is him you know, doing what he's done before because Brick was also a murder mystery but set in a high school. More or less. Yeah, I mean, he was he took the film noir genre and decided to, uh, instead of having it be about like, you know, seedy uh, detectives and like femme fatales, he's like, no, it's set in a high school. And I mean, that was, I would say clever. And I think that's how I would describe this movie too. It's clever in a way that you would find familiar if you're a fan of Rian Johnson's earlier work. It's a whodunit. Uh, like Christopher Plummer's character is discovered dead and a private detective thinks there's foul play and he's trying to work out what happened. And you've got your standard list of, you know, various family members with various levels of motive, but not necessarily means. That's just the first 20 minutes of the movie. Yep. And then there's a to there's a shift of not tone, but like gear change. And it becomes a slightly different movie past that point. Yeah, I agree. When it becomes focused more on uh, the, not the living, but like, you know, the nurse of the recently deceased. Marta. Okay. Mata, played by Ana de Armas, hmm. who I, I don't think I've seen before. I think I've seen her in something. She look, she seems very familiar, but I can't quite place her right now. Yeah, she's got one of those places like, you seem like, I definitely think I've seen you before, but maybe in a smaller role and in some movie yeah. five years ago. I mean, like, going off on your point, right? So, uh, one thing that I would say, it's not a criticism, but it's definitely an interesting choice. And I'm not so, I'm not so sure whether it's a detriment to the film at all, because, like, because when I entered this film, I was thinking like, okay, Rian Johnson has a penchant for taking something familiar and just kind of reworking it into his style. For sure. So like when the film starts out, uh, immediately I'm reminded of like maybe uh, every classic whodunit because it establishes your uh, murder. Yeah. Okay. The person who discovers the body. And then immediately, if you follow the tropes of like, you know, any whodunit, it's like, oh yeah, it has to be the butler who discovers it. Yeah. But in this case, it's the the, the, the immigrant house... nurse. Well, no, it's the housekeeper. Oh, friend, right? Yeah. Oh, okay, it was friend who discovered. Okay. And after that, it becomes yet again, I wouldn't say tropish, but I would say familiar, where yeah. they have. Uh, they established the police interviews with all the different family members. And, and then there's various like, unreliable narrator elements of it. Yeah, exactly. So it starts out as an entirely an unreliable narrator, which is par for the course for films of this. And I would say, um, I was pleasantly, like, um, I would say, I don't know, it, it lulled me into a feeling of comfort, thinking like, okay, this is probably going to be one of those overly convoluted murder mysteries yeah. with red herrings and a plot twist and then finally revealing the killer. So usually whenever these things are presented to me, what immediately triggers in my brain is, okay, detective mode on, I'm going to start paying attention to every single thing. Yeah, you treat it like any procedural, yeah. like uh, like they even show um, Murder, She Wrote, a clip of it. Oh yeah, 
Um, God bless Angela Lansbury. Yeah. Wherever she is. My favorite teapot. She's still alive somewhere. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. She said something problematic on Twitter, so I know she's still alive. Mm, I think that'd be amazing, right? Yeah. If she gets murdered, then it would truly be ironic and iconic. Oh my God. Imagine that. <laughs> she was bludgeoned by a teapot. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it was the butler with the candelabra. No. <laughs> it was the executive of the teapot. <laughs> Good lord. We're going to reboot your series whether you like it or not. <laughs> I'm sorry. See, I'm, I'm trying to write another movie in my head as now as I'm trying to describe uh, Rian Johnson's Knives Out. So as I was saying, everything that you recognize about the whodunit, so here's the, cast of, the cavalcade of characters. Mm-hmm. Here's all their very unique quirks and what makes them, uh, I would say, recognizable. Yep. And then... Yeah, exactly, maybe around the 20 to 30 minute mark, it becomes a procedural. So, uh, why I mentioned why I'm not sure whether it's a detriment or whether it's probably something interesting, because that was the moment when I was watching this film and I thought to myself, is this Rian Johnson doing what he does, like what he does not best, but does constantly, which is like, okay, at this point of time, okay, we're going to throw all the rules out. Yeah, I think. It might be because there have been other examples where, like, he like says, "Oh, you come from this chair. This is a nice couple chair." And he, like pulls it out from him and he's like, "Fuck so he, you!" He's literally pulling the else. rug under it. Yep. But it doesn't quite have that same, uh, I would say, uh, energy because it doesn't feel like he's pulling the rug under it. Because I don't know. In hindsight, when I rethink about the movie, it felt like he was just funneling the movie so that it leads to the obvious conclusion that he has set forth. I think. Possibly. Like it's it's in a way he's trying to be efficient with the characters and story. Yeah. It might just be also because whilst he because he knows that anyone who goes into a procedural or murder mystery, like everyone wants to play the detective along with the yeah. detective. So he's saying, No, I'm going to get that solved out of the way first. So I'm gonna tell what the story I actually want to say. I think for the rest of these viewers, uh Last King Fans, if you've not seen Knives Out, spoilers from now on, because it's very hard to discuss this film without actually revealing not only the consequences of the murder but actually who the killer is which is necessary when it comes to I mean the let, quality of this I film. think let's let's try and like I spend a little bit talking about like more like broad themes then we can give like a like You're gonna dance around it a bit more? Dance around a little bit, then okay. give like our final score and then we can like maybe maybe okay, how about this uh, we give general impressions. Sure. Uh, you go first. For me, it was thoroughly entertaining. I did like the performances, and I, as much as um, I'm not a fan of like the the one note kind of tropish character, I think everybody had a lot of fun portraying exactly the kind of. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't mind one note characters so long as you one do them very well, yeah. and secondly, they serve a wider purpose. And I think that not necessarily like characters, but more like um, depictions of a particular personality type of a rich, uh, a wasp. I think I know what you mean. Uh, to me, it feels like this is what everybody kind of will uh, paint as. These are the various faces of like white entitlement or something. Yeah, basically, like this is like the various versions of like you know rich white people. You I mean, see you got the entitled SJW who's looking at the possibly alt right younger kid. No, definitely alt right. Really? Yeah. What's the the, na- the masturbating, ma- masturbating Nazi boy is what he's called. <laughs> Was he really masturbating? Uh, it's not made very clear. I think he was just looking at his phone, right? As yeah. he was listening to a conversation. Possibly. And then oh. you've got like, you know, the Margot Stan, you have like the uh, Marianne Williamson-esque uh, kind of woman. Okay. That, that? Uh, Tony Collette. Uh, the very new oh. agey kind of like... Uh, yeah. Everything I hate about white people. Yeah. <laughs> Basically like all the variations of like the white people you can't fucking stand. Like that's what that family is. And... 
here's also one thing I need to bring up. As much as I enjoyed all of them and definitely going ham with the performances and definitely these are one-dimensional characters, right? Again, when I watched this movie and when I saw the the interview section, already I already recognized the misdirections. Yeah. So like for a guy like me, when I was watching Knives Out, it's already like I could kind of deduce he didn't do it, she didn't do it, yeah, he didn't yeah, do it, yeah. she didn't do it. So I think probably why I mentioned earlier where like when they kind of funneled it from an uh, unreliable narrative to a more of a procedural, mm-hmm. it literally became, okay, they've narrowed it down too much at the halfway mark. I think... Which kind of, I would say, I mean, I was still entertained, but it kind of started, I started to lose uh, engagement with it because it became kind of obvious who did it in the end, which uh, to me, I mean, when I watch a whodunit especially... If the whodunit manages to surprise me, and that's what especially all of us love about a good whodunit. Yeah. I mean, that's what made Murder on the Orange Express such a phenomenal whodunit. Because everybody did it. Yeah, suddenly, like, <laughs> Nobody expected it. Because, like, well, now everyone knows because everyone's seen some version of it. But, like, mm. when it first came out, I was like, oh shit. Yeah. That wasn't expected. True, that uh, classic Agatha Christie. Yeah. And I would even say, like, like, the conversation I had with myself as I was leaving the cinema yeah. is like, what did it better? And then the problem is, right, why I mentioned that this was probably detrimental is like, I can think of 10 movies straight away that just did the whodunit better. For sure. I'm- yeah. So it's like, it felt to me where, like, especially when I mentioned earlier where it felt like an exercise. It felt like Rian Johnson had an idea, a nugget of an idea, and he just wanted to, like, I wouldn't say get it out of his system, but... You know, like, when you, you start on that first drop of something and, like, you don't want it to, like, you know, just burden you for the rest of your life. You just want to get it out of the way so you yeah. can move on. So what it feels to me is, like, uh, it wasn't an unfinished idea, but I think he just kind of patched it up where it was necessary. And the entire second to third act felt like probably an idea from another script or another draft. Because it felt like two stories that kind of, I would say, it was very cohesive. It, it kind of yeah, flowed very well. Yeah, it's not that it, there was like a sudden like change of tone or anything. It was just that... It gradually eased into it. Yeah, it became a different story, which... And a different tone. Because yeah. it, it immediately lost the, the kind of quirky, uh, almost comedic quality in like the first half. Like, I was giggling at a lot of uh, definitely the, the, the characters mm-hmm. and their interactions. I love the, um, the detective's uh, tirade about donuts. I love Nana. Nana is just random. Oh, Nana was brilliant. <laughs> just her staring out the window is like, of course. Yeah. And or like, like staring intently you... at like some something on the on the the drawer, like and everyone's like shouting into her ear and she's like not paying any attention at all. One of the crucial things about a whodunit, especially a good whodunit, is your ability to misdirect. Mm-hmm. And I would say this right, as much as I enjoyed all the performances, because none of them mattered. Because none of them actually factored into the final a reveal of who the killer really was. Yeah. Because if you could think about it, right, especially during the... Okay, it's not a spoiler yet, but yeah. I have to mention the will reading scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> wow. But it immediately drew a line to who's innocent and who's not. Yeah. So all of a sudden, like, I would say this, right, if you're a fan of, like, whodunits or if you're, like, you know, you're an armchair detective yourself, right, I would have to warn you, there might... You might be a little bit disappointed at how... I mean, like, I, I knew who it was... Mm. by that point as well but i was still kind of on on board because i wanted to work out how it worked out yeah it became it more like okay how did he do it rather yeah. more than like uh who did it at all so i would say yeah uh, i was thoroughly entertained it did lose my engagement halfway through and i did like the performances um i mean also 
in terms of visuals, like I would say even the styles kind of changed because mm. originally there was a lot of uh, low camera angles. There was definitely a lot of very interesting uh, pans and swivels. And there's a lot of like foreshadowing with, uh, you know, items. Like literally when, uh, what was the elder gentleman again? Uh, Mr. Thornby. Oh, Christopher Plummer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's he? Harlan, right? Harlan, yeah. 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 Uh, if you recall the conversation Harlan has with Marta as they were playing Go. Oh, yeah. And then, like, the camera just pans and then, like, the knife kind of comes into the foreground. Yeah, yeah. And then, to me, it felt like, okay, this is a little bit too film school, Rian. We have outgrown this kind of obvious metaphor. And that was him, like, talking, like, it was clearly, here is the Chekhov's gun. Where he was yeah. talking about, like, real knives and fake knives. Yeah. Right. And it's like, okay, like, to me... I mean, that's what probably I'll dock some points for because it kind of felt like, okay, Rian, you wrote a brick 10 years ago. This idea would have probably been good 10 years ago. It doesn't work quite now because in the last 10 years, freaking the Chekhov flamethrower from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That I didn't expect. Yeah, that was... Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? So it's like when it comes to foreshadowing or establishing, you know, like your, your plot devices or your deus ex machinas, it's like... I mean, like, that's a super high standard to be holding movies at. From but true, I mean, that's what I say. It's like when I looked at something like Knives Out, like how I would describe it, it's clever, but it's not brilliant. You know what I mean? It's like, if you were to ask a guy, hey, come up with a script in maybe a year, and like, something like that would be, okay, that's not bad for a first draft. But it felt like something that if you expanded on, especially since like that whole knife thing becomes very crucial, especially towards the end. Yeah, yeah. So you know what I mean? Like when you when you put something like that and you pocket it in your brain as you're watching this, I felt like, uh, so when is this gonna be brought up again? And then when it happens, it's like there it is. <laughs> nah, I mean, yeah, and uh, to some extent, like with that part, I really enjoyed it. In fact, I only just watched it earlier today, so it's quite fresh in my mind. But um, I think that I maybe enjoyed it slightly more because I realized past halfway point that it was no longer a whodunit movie, but. Mm. In fact, the movie was about something else entirely. Yeah, yeah. And once I realized what no, what the message is, I, I don't want to say it because it's a bit spoilery. But once I realized it was like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, well done. You've managed to like entice me into having this kind of dialogue rather than like just a fun romp. It was still very fun, really funny, and uh, like definitely, you know, a bit more of a like a popcorn kind of movie for some elements yeah it's purely popcorn but there's still like deeper elements which make you think and I think that there could be some interesting conversations which you can have about this movie such as uh, well this is where we have to go to spoiler talk so back okay so uh, last King fans if you don't want to be spoiled about uh, the film Knives Out skip ahead for the next 10-15 minutes probably or um, just go watch, watch the, movie the movie and come and back then come back okay but yeah before we go in I'm gonna give this movie 7 out of 10 I'm going to give it around 6.5 to 7 also. Yeah. Okay. So, the other way. Um, when I realized, uh, like, spoiler alert, 3, 2, 1, when it, it was actually a conversation about, like, the immigrant story in uh, America. Yeah. Like, that's when I realized that this is actually, like, a movie which has layers. Okay. Because uh, the first time I noticed it was when, like, every member of the family, like, deliberately or, like, not deliberately, uh put Marta from the wrong country like I said oh the helper from uh, Paraguay oh from Uruguay mm. oh from Brazil like yeah because it very clearly they, they don't know who the fuck she is but she's the one who's been spending the most time with the grandfather and so like that's why she wins the inheritance and so it's more about like saying that even though like people are family generally like sometimes it's the person who's like from abroad like the real like 
alien who gets to know you the most. Like they're the ones who can be like the closest to you, more so than family. Mm, okay, yeah. I noticed this narrative, and to me, it felt very shoehorned in. I wouldn't say shoehorn. I think it. I think it was. Um, to me, it felt like another misdirection that was unnecessary because I was more interested in the journey of Martha as like, if you remove the, ho- the whole immigrant story, it would kind of ruin uh, a lot of the motivations because the the reason why Harlan decided to not only give the inheritance to her because she's a good person, she's yeah. just down and out a good person, and she was tested several times. Absolutely. Uh, was also like the one of the niggles I have with the movie is his reasoning for his suicide. Because he feels that if you're found out, your mother will get deported. And then he just... I don't know. It, it felt like, uh, okay, if that's what we're going with. And then he kills himself. Yeah. It's like, okay, logically, that's not really going to be... That's not going to happen. Like, she's not going to get deported because of this or that. Well, no, she... You, that's the thing. Like, it's very easy to get deported right now in the States. Yeah, like, she, just she, now... I uh, agree, but it's like... I mean, I'm not going to attach any of current world politics... But it's like, even as a character such as Harlan, right? He's like, no, he'd be smarter than that. You know what I mean? Well, you'd think that. But the thing is, like, he's also think like, he thinks he only has, like, 10 minutes to get something done. Because she said, mm. you have 10 minutes until you die. So, and like, there's not so much you can do at, like, 11.30pm on, like, probably a weekend. So, this is what I'm... So, the thing is, right, what I really liked about the arc, right? And what I thought was clever was the fact that he wasn't going to die at all. Yeah, that because I thought was a fantastic That subversion. switch was actually very good. But it also kind of felt to me more or less like, I mean, why I say it was shoehorned in, right? It's like, it's really hard to give Marta motivation. Well, I... And the only motivation was she had to protect her family. So it's like, okay, if, if that's what you could come up with for now, fine. But, I mean, it's a little bit, I would say, weak sauce. But, I mean, it's, it's not a terrible idea. It's just like, I think it I think it makes sense because like whilst you know in a vacuum it's a bit weak if you like set it within like the current political climate we're in where it is extremely risky to be especially True, unlike, unlike documented immigrant which is what her mother was yeah but you do understand what I say like if you attach it to any political climate this movie will not age well that that is indeed the issue so immediately and this, this can't be timeless no although like even you know like, what I mean? yeah, even like timeless movies, they're still a snapshot of that particular time and that they were made in. Those timeless movies used it effectively. True. Like Star Wars is a good example so, again. I know. And then if you wanna say like like I get why to me it felt like we needed to really paint a clear division between Martha and the rest of the family. Because it's I would say, especially in this day and age, it's yeah. very hard to portray high class, middle class. Because, well... Because nobody in the middle class... nobody Also, in, the middle class doesn't exist anymore. It's now, like, you know, yeah. the rich 1% and then, like, and the rest of the people. And even somebody say, like... Especially when, you, when it comes to the who done it, right? And, of course, the obvious trope is the butler did it. Yeah. Butlers don't exist anymore. <laughs> no, no, they still exist. Uh, I saw, I saw but, a listing for a butler on LinkedIn. True, but... Somebody within, like, say, the Thornby family, their, their wealth range... Yeah. No, unless not for sixty million. No, not for that amount. Yeah. So you do. So that's probably I would say like if you want to get the help involved, and then you needed to give us some sort of dramatization and some motivation. So it kind of like okay, this would be I would say as much as I appreciate that it is topical. Yeah. It is concurrent with uh, what's going on in the the current political state over in America. I would also say this right. You know that that's what makes it easy. 
uh, okay, I I can. You, I can, can, you know what I mean? It's like what what can we take that exists right now that people relate to? I think, and you don't is, need to explain too yeah, much. It's just fairly on the nose, which. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like a mark against the movie per se. I'm not saying it isn't, but, but it's just... definitely like it's definitely like dating the movie for sure. And not only that, is like when you have say somebody like Martha and yeah. we create this character and this is what surrounds her, then of course the rest of the family have to be the obvious anti tropes. You know what I mean? It's like okay, so why are there? Why are they specifically having that discussion about immigration? Because we need to feel for Martha. Because he's like, then to me, it feels like, I mean, this is what I'm saying. Like, he probably had a great idea when he wrote Knives Out. It was yeah. probably going to be like a classic whodunit and then it would totally blow your mind how it ended. He probably couldn't finish that. But I guess also, I wouldn't say executives, but Rian Johnson definitely is the kind of guy who would add uh, very topical themes into his films. Yeah. And it felt to me, it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, obvious bad guy is obvious. And obvious good girl is obvious. So the, that's why, to me, probably the only uh, thing that stood out, and it didn't stand out because it was exceptional, but because everything was so, I would say, you just arranged it in a way where, okay, I see your moves. Yeah. Was Chris Evans. Because Chris Evans, to me, felt like, oh yeah, okay. It was a nice turn of it because we're used to him being like the ultimate Boy Scout. I mean, if you've got Captain America to yeah. be the bad guy, spoilers again. Yeah, it was well, Chris Evans well, all along. I mean, he's very clearly a piece of shit in uh, the trailers, but yeah, he's the one who like is the one like who doesn't well doesn't actually kill, but he kills the housekeeper to try like keep the secret. Yeah, but also so this right, it would take definitely a, a guy of Chris Evans' caliber and charisma to be the lovable asshole because during yeah. the will reading. I was rooting for Chris Evans. <laughs> Kinda, because... Eat like, shit, eat shit, eat shit. I was like, yep. Because, like, he is... He's a terrible person, but he knows he's a bad person. Everyone else, like, they mm. firmly believe that they're a good upstanding individual. Which makes him less one note. Yeah. And which is why... Which brings me to the point, that's when I knew that it was him all along. Yeah. Because When once, he's just, like, laughing his ass off and everyone's like, what? Uh, not not just that, thing? because the thing is, right, not only during the Will scene, right, was when he uh, obviously joined the line like when I talked about the, the division line between Martha and the rest of the family yeah then of course it's like he establishes within his entire like uh, dialogue was like okay I'm against all of you eat shit eat shit eat shit eat shit and then he helps Martha yeah and immediately I thought okay once you have a, co- a complex character that's suspect number one absolutely and that's what I would say like I'm not sure if it's detrimental or maybe it's just him trying to streamline the film but when it was later revealed that it was Chris Evans all along. It's like, yeah, I kind of saw that coming from the moment the hospital exploded. Yeah, I mean, it would have been kind of interesting if it was like, yeah, the the all right troll. Uh, no, boy. Nana. It should have been Nana all along. Because Nana... That would the, be weird. No, but it was like, you never knew. And then, like, why did Nana kill him? I hate you all. <laughs> She's just insane. Like, yeah. weird, but I did not see that coming. But then again, it was a nice aversion because everyone thought she was just like a... Uh, Someone with severe dementia yeah. who doesn't like has no gla- like grasp on reality, but in fact she's still a very sharp individual. She just realizes the entire family are just up their own ass, so she just pretends to not you know yeah, have I, any like connection to reality. Like maybe it's like a fake dementia. She's just really paying attention yeah, like, all along. Yeah, like when uh, Benoit Blanc uh, like uh, like shouts at them to get out of the house and like walks off with um, Martha. She just goes, <laughs> it's like. You are an amazing batshit old woman. Hey, Nana. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, okay, but... So, okay, plot contrivances aside, and I would say 
Like I, I do see where you're coming from, where it, it tries to do something deeper, but I, under the guise of a whodunit, is like, oh yeah, I'm trying to pay attention to other things. So when something like that comes up, it feels like no, you're trying to distract me. So I, I just pocket it away, and I'm focusing on who did it. And then the moment I realized it was Chris Evans, like the ransom character, it felt like okay, so. Uh, it was literally counting down to so how let's let's see the montage how does he do it, yeah, which is kind of like why you watch Spike a lot of uh, procedurals anyway. True that, but I mean, again, uh, it was kind of uh, advertised as a who done it. I mean, it's literally labeled a who done it by Rian Johnson. To yeah, true. Although to be fair, this is not the first time he's done you know subversion of what you expect. True that, but I mean, just this time he's not doing it with a multi billion dollar say, franchise. Yeah. <laughs> It was painful, I guess. But, I mean, you do understand, like, when you see something like Brick, like, it is a film noir, but it retains the, the, what's essential about the film noir till the end. The only thing that he kind of messes with is having it set, instead of, like, in the gritty streets of San Francisco, it's set in a high school. Yeah, whereas this time, he does yeah. subvert a bit more. Although, he keeps in other elements, like, you know, the very out-there private detective. True that? And I have to say, well done, Daniel Craig, for being... One of the more ridiculous. I would like, say. I mean, I, I totally see what he's doing. That is a parody of Hercule Poirot. For sure. Like, what if Poirot was like so deeply suffered that it was painful? <laughs> Not only that, but it's like really up his own ass. <laughs> yeah. And but you know what? Props to Daniel, to Daniel Craig is like for maintaining the accent as well. Not just that. You could tell he was having fun, and he kept a straight face the whole time. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's nice to see him. Yeah, generally enjoy a role because he's not been enjoying Bond the last few years. That's he was also in those yeah. shitty Narnia movies, right? Or was it? He was. No, no, uh, no Golden Compass. Man, yeah, he was Lord Asriel. Yeah, like good casting, terrible movie, mm-hmm. really fucking terrible movie. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what a fucking awful movie. We'll be reviewing his dark material sometime later this year. Once it's finished, I guess. Yeah. There are uh, only eight episodes, so we're past halfway mark now. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, we'll have to probably bunch it in with Rick and Morty and probably The Mandalorian. Oh, for sure, yeah. Mm. But, so, uh, yeah, I think... Yeah. I mean, how about you? Any general nitpicks, though? Nitpicks? Uh, I think I agree that... I wish we had like a bit more time with the rest of the family because mm. I... I don't mind that there were one note, uh, like yeah. weird, like faces of uh, white American um, uh, assholery, but it would be nice to spend a bit more time, especially with like Jamie Lee Curtis's character and with. Uh, I really liked Walt because he was such. Like, this, oh, the, the Michael Shannon character. Yeah, the embodiment of white mediocrity. Like, honestly, saying, I own an empire. Like, no, Wait, you're, you're talking were... about Walt or Michael Shannon? <laughs> no, uh, Walt. <laughs> Michael Shannon is brilliant. <laughs> no, man, I especially love that moment where he corners Martha as she's trying to escape the paparazzi. Oh, God. And then yeah. he, it's like, in my head, I thought, like, okay, that's a clever misdirect. I was expecting, like, the classic Michael Shannon outburst, but it was just nah. understated and so deeply uncomfortable. But again, to me, I would also point out that it's like, I recognized it immediately. Like, oh, this is a misdirect. Michael Shannon is innocent once I saw that move- yeah. moment. Because it's clearly obvious he's really just in it because, you know... He, he needs the money because... He has not not just that. Because it's like, when they emphasize on him using the cane and everything, it felt to me like, yeah, he does not have what it takes to kill a person. Absolutely not. Yeah. So immediately when I when I saw that, to me, it was like, okay, he's off. And then it only led me to... Like, oh, man, I was Actually, you know what I was kind of hoping for? It would be... Yeah. I was really hoping it would be Tony Collette. Yeah, that would have been an interesting one as well. Yeah, but I mean, to me, the story, the way it it uh, it actually you know funnels down to where it, where it becomes ransom is the obvious choice, right? I was kind of hoping, like, especially that moment where uh, a Democrat character, Mister Blanc, yeah, when he arrests ransom, mm-hmm. and the, in in the classic Who Done It is like, oh, 
the you know you arrest the wrong person first. You arrested the you wrong get... person, right? And then it turns out he's the bad guy, right? Yeah. So that was like straight away is like okay, like well, that, like I said, the moment when they blew up the hospital and they arrested Ransom, immediately I knew that's the guy. Yeah, it's him. But there was that small potential, that small glimmer of like, or it could have been Tony Collette because it's not because she had the best motive. But because she wasn't quite as established as everyone else, she was still kind of like yeah. faded in the background, which is like the standard thing of like when you go through the list of people in a who done it or like a yeah. the procedural you go like like she's still the one like okay. okay who has had some dialogue but otherwise has no particular reason to be there that's the one yep and then like why I checked off like Michael Shannon or even Don Johnson or even uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's characters right is like like the setup was a bit too obvious. Yeah, but also like Jamie Lee Curtis's character very clearly loved her father too much to really do something like that. Yep. And she didn't necessarily need his money anymore. She just like felt like she deserved it because she's the eldest. Yeah. I mean, which is why I also bring up the point, right? Especially the pivotal moment when they were doing the will reading. Yeah. And they established immediately like it's everybody versus Martha. Yeah, especially because like before they're like, oh, we'll take care of you. You've been very good to our it's father. All, that means like, classic so misdirection, yeah. Patronizing condescension and something like... Oh, that bitch got it all. Oh, you little rat. How dare you? True. Like also, the way people turn in an instant. I also especially love that moment where the, the younger daughter who calls Martha. Yeah, like you think like, oh, maybe she's not as bad. She's as really reaching out. No, oh, she's, she's just as bad as everyone else. I wouldn't say she's just as bad. But the thing is like, yeah, it's it's her family. It's her home. That yeah, because stake. also like, you know, like she's also like another version of that. Like, you know, rich white American. Like she's studying uh, like a very like leftist core. She has like leftist viewpoints. But she's still a rich girl and doesn't want to be a not rich girl. True that. Like she's only willing to go so far for the cause. Yeah. So I would also say, what do you think would probably have? Um, I don't know. If it wasn't ransom, who would be your choice? Uh, I think Colette would have been good. Um, otherwise, one of the uh, great grandkids. Really? Sorry, one of the grandkids. Yeah. Yeah, because. I don't know, because you don't normally see, like, many, like, kids doing it. True that, yeah. That, that's definitely... I, that's that, that's the only, like, other people I can think of. Everyone else, like, you... It would have been too much of, like, a reach for, like, why they I would say... Okay, so, my second choice, and I was really thinking about this after I watched the film, right? It would have been perfect if it was Blanc, but it would yeah. have been hard to explain. That would have been... What a reach. Yeah, but... Like for me, okay, so follow me here as I do my writing, <laughs> I, my, my draft. Every time he mentions, he, he's constantly mentioning like the donut and the hole. Yeah. And that's the best misdirect because yeah. it's basically, he's trying to convince the audience and everybody else around him that at the center of it all, it's like, uh, I don't know how I'm involved. Yeah. But what if we do a fucking like, you know, David Fincher 7? No, no, it's him all along. He's the bad guy. That would have. He's yeah. just constantly lying to people. In fact, it would have been like a, a perfect kind of, uh, I would say, like another Kevin Spacey role, a uh, Kaiser Soze, where he's like, he transforms and like, no, 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 the Benoit Blanc, this character, is not really who I am. And then like, slowly the droll drops. Yeah, and, it's and like then a really like, different then accent. he's like, I am the cousin, whatever. Fuck Pompey. It's like I know it would have been hard to explain, but it's like, I lo- it's like to me especially when you set up the cards in a certain way and you just want to watch it fall a certain way, right? You want it to be as satisfying as possible. Yeah. And having him be so-called the, uh, the, the the medium, basically, he's the vessel for us, the audience, as the other sleuths trying to solve it. Yeah. And that would have been the best one. 
So I'm saving that for Knives Out 2, Knife Harder. Because <laughs> I think he survives the movie. He seems like it, yeah. <laughs> he seems to have survived the movie. Then again, I don't think we are ready for a uh, Benoit Blanc uh, cinematic universe. It'll be I mean, so interesting having him I'll just solve crimes. I just want him to be like uh, just a cameo in movies to come. Yeah. I want more of Daniel Craig sporting that ridiculous ass accent. <laughs> And just like doing weird, like uh, what sounds oh, like I uh, do declare, <laughs> so, yeah, like uh, southern truisms, which if you think about it, make no fucking sense. Mm. Like saying the truth of gravity is rainbow. What does it mean? I don't know. I didn't read the book. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> like, oh, okay. So there sure. you have it. Last game, fans. Uh, knives out. Um, Recommended. I would say. I would say, yeah, check it out. <laughs> Thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah. Well, but... now we need to shift gears and go to the second movie. Now yeah, that's yeah. a segue, ladies and gentlemen, to well Ford versus Ferrari. Calm, calm down, studio audience. It wasn't yeah. that great. <laughs> hey, compared to the shit we've been dealing the last few episodes, <sighs> that's pretty golden. We tried damn hard. So yeah. uh, speaking of trying damn hard, um, Ford versus Ferrari. And uh, yeah, for the first time in a while, we see uh, Christian Bale with an accent closer to his real one. And it she, sounds he really did, fake. He, he does the same accent in the boxer. Like the accent he does. Yeah. It feels so... I would say it's default Christian Bale. I don't know where this guy is from. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I didn't realize he was from Birmingham until I looked him up on uh, Wikipedia afterwards. Yeah. Like, so this is uh, based on true events about the creation of the Ford GT40 that won the Le Mans endurance race in 1966. Mm-hmm. Taking it away from Ferrari, who had been dominating that race for in several years, right? I think almost since inception. Okay. I, I think before it was like French cars, and then like the Brits had it for a bit, but then like Ferrari was just like year after year after year, just like absolutely dominating. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I would say, but it's also nothing about, to spoil because it's based on true events. Yeah, but it's also about like you know the friendship between. Uh, Carol Shelby and Ken Miles but also like the internal bureaucracy of Ford and just like how terrible these <laughs> big American corporations Suits are Suits ruin everything Yeah yeah. Uh, it's just like Knives Out actually a movie of many layers like on the surface it's just a car movie but it's also you know a biopic biopic mm-hmm. it's also a relationship drama it's also a damning indictment of corporate America it's yeah. but I think what it does very well uh I mean, yeah, you can definitely put this under the umbrella category of it's basically a biopic. Yeah. But I think what this does very well is, unlike other biopics where they just over-focus on the emotional traumas or the journey of people, Yeah. what makes this film especially endearing to me, and I mean, aside from James Mangold magnificently directing it, For sure. this is the pacing n- was spot on. Yeah, another proof that he just understands how to tell a story in parts. I think I would say this, right? Like, how he mixed and matched uh, Logan with probably the Western. Yeah. This is a biopic, also a man on a mission movie. For sure. Like, it's, to me, it, it gave me the same chills as watching something like, uh, maybe like an Ocean's Eleven where you just see guys get shit done. Yeah, especially like the really technical parts where they're really breaking down how to make a sports car. Yeah. That was, you know, I really enjoyed that because as I've mentioned before on a podcast, I grew up with a father who used to do amateur racing and was really into F1. So I kind of grew up around cars, kind of. Was it technically accurate? Or accurate enough? Very accurate, actually. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, talking about... And uh, I would also want like the really like drilling down on the rules of racing, like the Le Mans... Uh, I didn't even know book. about the car boot shit. Is, like, is that real? For that race, I think 
I, I'm not familiar with that uh, racing circuit, but I know that there are very specific rules in the UK for amateur racing. And also, especially, I love the fact where it's uh, they established it earlier on in the film, and then later is like, why can't we just change the brakes? It's yeah. part of a car. Yeah, it's it's a part. It's a part. It's a part. And it's like, there you go. And, that, and that's what I love about it. Uh, I mean, okay, general impressions, right? I think I would say it does a very good job of being entertaining despite being a car film. Yeah, I think it's kind of like uh, how Rush is on mm. its surface a car movie. That's definitely something I would compare it to. But it's you know it's a, it's a racing movie and it's also about the relationship between two individuals. Although this one is between two corporations, because a bit also at the heart of it is the two individuals. Yeah, although they're working together this time rather than working against each other. I would say yeah, and that's what I especially love because I mean there's nothing better than seeing guys get shit done. And yeah, being good friends and like only having one fist fight and then like ending it by that's necessary. Yeah, by everybody having, beats up their best friend once in a while. By having what fucking English does say fizzy pop? Jesus Christ! Because you couldn't get the rights to say Coca Cola, but you could show it. Yeah, it's like oh no, we didn't we didn't get paid that much by the Coca Cola company. Mm-hmm. Or either that, or maybe there was conflicting sponsors on the in the background. Possibly, yeah. So you wouldn't know. And there might be, have been a Pepsi somewhere in the background. So, yeah, you can only get away with so much. I think even when uh, Molly was handing out the drinks, it yeah. was uh, brand backwards. Yeah, although, like, that, you can't hide that bottle. True, but you can grip it by the neck and it becomes unrecognizable. That's so, true. I will say this, uh, what I totally appreciated also about uh, Ford vs. Ferrari, uh, firstly... The color grading was pretty delicious. Yeah, it's it's one of those movies which invokes the like the feeling of the sixties. Yeah, the, like, the vibe. nostalgic vibe. It's like it really felt like it was a movie of its time. And like we also watched uh, Once Upon a what Time in Hollywood. Yeah, very similar. Style. And then you look at it and you think like, oh, here's another movie. Those are actual cars from that era driving along, probably a recreation yeah, of which a is garage astounding. or something. Like they were able to get those many cars. True that. Yeah. And the budget for this film was actually a scant ninety-seven point six million, or barely under a hundred. Well, I could see where the money went into. Mm-hmm. Like those race scenes were phenomenal. I loved it. Yeah, I. Just top of the order, uh, everything about the race scenes, like from like the, the camera angles, the sound design, my god. Did you watch it in Atmos? No, unfortunately. Fuck, watch it in Atmos. <laughs> I, I, I want to watch it. Every time something just screeches past, right? And then every time he like he, he heart turns on, on, a, on a hairpin turn, right? And, it's like, and just hear the screech of tires and like the when collisions and everything. Or, or like when the when the tires slightly like brush the camber, it's like, ooh, that's a... That's a noise I've heard so many times. I think up. it's the fact that this is why I don't stand. I can't stand Fast and Furious movies. Yeah, because it's so like dumbed down. Nothing and about it feels dangerous. Yeah, it's whereas so- I watch something like this, right? And then especially when they were doing like doing the first leg of even the Le Mans, when yeah. people just fucking like blow it, right? It's like. Oh no, like even in the first minute where uh, Carol Shelby like comes in and is on fire and he's just like standing going, huh? What? What's going on? Like, <laughs> oh fuck! Oh, yeah, yeah. that initial in the 60s race was crazy. True that. Uh, so I don't know. What I also want to kind of maybe discuss is like how what how could this movie have been better? I'm trying to think because it's like my general consensus of the film is that I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. I thought it was extremely entertaining, but I I wouldn't call it like similar to Knives Out. It's not brilliant. It's not exceptional, and. I think the well, the best thing about this film, right, is that it was two and a half hours long and I didn't feel it. Yeah, it's like I was surprised when I looked at my watch and oh, it's nearly over. Yeah, I think because the problem is there's that... There's a lot of moments in the film that they had to kind of truncate and fit. And 
especially well, it's like two years of time that they have to try and, and like, not only that cover. it's like you had to kind of like uh, establish like the rivalry between Ford and Ferrari yeah and then you need to establish uh, the character the, the premises and the backgrounds of both Ken Miles and Carol Shelby yeah which left little room for everywhere and everyone else but unfortunately there's a lot of things then you even had to showcase the moment where fucking Ford goes all the way to Italy only to get spat on by Enzo himself yeah wow I mean it's like and it didn't feel like um, how would say like say something like Bohemian Rhapsody where we need to show this part this part this part this part and end at Wembley yeah and they even managed to spoilers it's, it's, it's history what Look, spoilers yeah sorry for spoiling something that literally happened like the ending when Ken Miles dies yeah. it's like they could have ended it at Le Mans they, but they didn't well I think it's because they wanted to show just how tragic it was because he was denied his win yep. by bureaucratic bullshit and he never got a chance to try again because if I wouldn't he got, even say he was denied but the thing is it's like, well, like fate took it away from him in the cruelest way possible not necessarily he made the choice to slow down he did but he, he chose to but which is what I love because it, that gave him his hero farewell you yeah. know what I mean that blaze of glory and like what especially I would appreciate I mean what I like is also like it, it does like especially for guys like me who I'm not a, a, a gearhead I, yeah. I, I don't follow racing but I honestly wanted to learn more about this guy you know what I mean? The thing about Ken Miles is that like his actual racing career, it's not like that long because mm-hmm. he got into it very late. Yeah. I, mean, I would say something along the lines of maybe like say a Kurt Cobain, he, he made only three albums. That's true. Or like a Tupac Shakur. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but we'll stand the test of time because then we... Not, it's not say he was denied his victory, but the world has been denied this man's genius. Yeah. Which I think is what a lesser director would have done because then they would have done the super sweeping orchestral score and make it super schmaltzy but no it was basically chicka boom chicka boom chicka boom <laughs> it was just that lovely off its time soundtrack yeah like no, kind of like uh, uh, aping the sound of a car starting I think it's because <laughs> at that point the movie was no longer about him and Carol Shelby it was more about the grand idea the grand idea of trying to achieve the perfect sports car yeah. and how many people have died chasing that ideal yeah this is a movie which is it's not about any one thing, which is why it transcends the tropey biopic. Yep, it's it's about you know the the ideal of uh, sports cars. It's the ideal of trying to build the ultimate supercar. The ideal of racing and uh, male bonding and like all these things matched up. And it's not it's not like they're vying for attention. Like they each have their time to shine mm-hmm. at different parts of the movie. I think also like as I mentioned a few times on the podcast right I would also describe this as what you call a perfect masculine movie this is definitely a dad movie but a very well made dad movie that yeah, and it's not dads can enjoy and don't misunderstand because masculine movies a lot of times get mis- misconstrued as bro movies now those are th- that's a totally different genre yeah no Fast and Furious is a bro movie that's a bro movie this is a masculine movie in the sense where it's about what is the common ideal among a lot of guys it's the pursuit of perfection and a job well done yeah it's like um, I mean, for me, like especially the moments that which really tugged at me is just like those scenes of just Christian Bale listening to the radio. Just he's still working on that car. He's just like, working, and he's just like, "I told you to uh, like be easy on a gearbox. Mm. It's not easy." There you go. Or the way he talks himself when he's uh, racing. Oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, that's like I've done that as well. You know what I want to see now? Yeah. I wanna, oh, if only that show exists in what it used to be, I would have loved to see Christian Bale on Top Gear. <laughs> yeah, well, the Grand Tour exists now. Yeah, it's not quite the same. Oh no, it sucks now. And I would also especially love the fact that, like, could he have beaten J.K. or Simon Cowell? <laughs> I don't think so. Nah, really. I don't think he cares enough. Like, J.K. is super competitive. True that. And he, this is, he's got his fair share of Ferraris too. 
Oh yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. So I would say this, right? Is this movie for general audiences or is it for a specific demographic? And I would say it made a lot of money, though. It made a hundred million dollars at the box office. So I think it's also because like there's been some uh, academy interest in it, and it's is that time of the year where people go like, okay, so this is what they're going to be talking about in February. So yeah, true that. I mean, is this in Rocket Man? And I can't remember. There was also a couple of other biopics that came out that's probably going to be vying for Oscar attention. Yeah. Um, I mean, Wait, was Rocket Man this year or last year? It was this, this year, year right? but much earlier. It was mm. like um, May, I, June. I did not enjoy I, that yeah, at all. I didn't watch it because I don't care. And I heard that it was kind of like rewriting history. Also, again, personal rule: uh, biopics which are made while the subject is still alive, I don't trust. Yeah. Because there's someone they're trying to please, which is the problem I have with Straight Outta Compton. That too, yeah. Because like that yeah. movie went on for too long. <laughs> yeah. Also, like wait until at least Dre's uh, I've moved on, or is too old to be able to get involved. No, then you still have Ice Cube. <laughs> and his son, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think his son cares. Uh, yeah. I but they know. got him to, to play his father, which was quite funny. So, yeah. So, let's talk about performances. Who was your favourite? Honestly, I think that I prefer Damon over Bale. Yeah, I, I think, agree. <laughs> I think because, like... Bale felt like a character. Damon felt like a guy who was in that moment. It was a bit more subtle, but I think also because like Ken Miles was a bit of a caricature in real life as well. Okay. Like, uh, I have no. I mean, I have no uh, history or no knowledge of him. I'm not really familiar with him either because you know, again, my my father was born to F1 than Le Mans, but he's familiar with the pedigree. Really. But I'd uh, be disappointed. You're an Englishman. Shouldn't he be in the annals of guys you talk about? <laughs> I think it's like if you talk about like ultimate um, uh, racers or like um, supercar drivers, like you have to talk about Ken Miles mm. because he helped create what some people consider one of the best like first supercars, the GT40, is a beautiful, amazing car. I agree. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, still to this day, amazing. It's a sexy piece of machinery. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, he was a little bit of a caricature in real life as well. So it makes sense for Christian Bale to like, you know, play up that aspect of him because like, yeah. he's very much. You know, you're working class Joe from Birmingham who moved to Los Angeles for some reason. And managed to open a garage and still owe the IRS. And, well, I mean... I, and have a too hot for his own good wife. Yeah. <laughs> but in the movie, I don't know in real life. I mean, I don't know what she was looking like in real life. Like, she's from Birmingham, so I don't know much. Before anyone complains, I'm, my family's from Birmingham, so I'm allowed to be sh- uh, shitty about <laughs> it. And uh, I listen to a lot of heavy metal, which is from Birmingham. So, yeah, that too. Exactly. I love Ozzy Osbourne just as much. Fuck off, brummies. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, because... <laughs> Matt Damon, there's a lot of subtlety in the way he portrayed uh, Carol Shelby. Because mm. even like the small things, as he watched people drive around in the car, which he knows he can't drive anymore at that speed yeah. because of his heart condition. And it's like that yearnful longing for something you can't have anymore. You see it in the eyes, I see. Yeah, the... and then when... And also, all the shit he has to put up with at Ford just to try and make a fucking car and let his friend drive it. And I would say, like, I totally agree with you that this is a dead movie because even us, as we're entering our middle age, right, we totally relate to having to deal with a shitty boss that or somebody. middle management fuckery. And so he's like, got nothing else better to do than impose himself on And you. it's not even the head boss, it's the one just below, the fucking bootlicker who gets Played in the way. Played brilliantly by Josh Lucas. Yeah. I would say, perfect asshole. Yeah, he was the right kind of smarmy dickhead, which you just want, like, you wanted his face to be... And like, I mean, like, I also, I don't know if it really happened, but especially that moment when they lock him in the office as they took <laughs> Ford for the drive. Yes. And I was like, this is extremely satisfying. Yeah. 
<laughs> and also because his reasons for getting rid of Kamal's were purely petty. Like he tried to say, oh, he's not brand friendly. Like, no, he was rude to me the first time I met him. Therefore, I decided I hate him and I don't want him to be successful. Mm, true that. I think, I think they kind of, it's not spelt out, but then they do mention in the film, uh, in the, one of the dialogue scenes where they, they, can't, they don't like us because they, they can't never be like us. Yeah. Which is like, yeah, more reasons for me to keep paying attention. I also want to give shout outs to Mr. Tracy Letts as Henry Ford. Yes, as like a man who very much is living under the burden of being Henry Ford's son. Yeah. Like, how the fuck do you follow that up? I mean, like, one of my favorite moments is during the intro where basically they try to buy over Ferrari and oh, then they yeah. come back and then he's like, what did he say? And he's like, what did he call me? What did he call me? Call you fats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he called I, you a pig idiot or something. Son of a whore. And he's just kind of like, <laughs> I'm gonna destroy this man. And I totally love that because, again, I mean, even though it's a trope of the man on the mission where, like, you know, the grizzled general or sergeant assembles a team. Yeah. He's like, but he doesn't have, he's not that involved with uh, Shelby or Ken Miles. No, because he can't be. He's got more important things to he's run. He's got to run a factory. He's yeah. got to run, like, you know, uh, the American automotive And also because, industry. in the grand scheme of things, Ford is still selling motors and, like, yeah, they make a thing about, like, oh, uh, it's declining. People are buying Chevy instead. Mm. It's like, Ford would have survived without the GT40 win. It wasn't like super critical to the company surviving. Yeah. It was purely because Enzo Ferrari was rude to him. Not, yeah, and I love that. I love yeah. that kind of chutzpah where it's basically as a guy, oh, it's on, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, it's just like... like I love that. It's like, basically... And the contrast between like, the grand, like, oh, I'm, I'm telling you, go to war, win this for us. It's, like, it's such a petty like dick measuring contest between two billionaires. Which I loved. It's yeah. just like... it's. I look at that and I look at like maybe what's going on with all these other billionaires like Jeff Bezos or Elon yeah. Musk. And they that big dick mission contest going on right now. I mean like when Elon Nothing's Musk... Nothing's changed. Like when Elon Musk announced the Cybertruck. And then like tried to said shatterproof windows and smashes it with a fucking ball. You know what I love about that? Yeah. I want that thing. I, I want it. It's so it ugly looks, and I love it. You know what? It's not even say ugly. Everybody's going to complain that it doesn't look like a traditional truck or a Jeep, right? In, in my head right now, there is so much science and engineering in that to make it so fuel efficient or so... It looks like a cyberpunk car. No, yeah, and not only that, right? This is what cars from the future were supposed to look like. As, yeah. like. as a guy growing up in the 80s where everybody's constantly reminding you, oh, in the future, we got flying cars. Hey, a step in the direction. It's like the promise delivered by the... De well, yeah, the de promise made by DeLorean actually realized. Because DeLorean was actually yeah, a pretty shitty car. Yeah, but imagine all the windows that's going to be smashed because somebody saw that thing on the internet. Yeah. And then realizing that, no, it's actual shatterproof now. <laughs> yeah. Although, like, in his defense, uh, bulletproof glass is meant to shatter because it's meant to in yeah, absorb the shock, not, mm -hmm. you know, like, bounce off. Who convinced him to throw that cannonball at it? Because <laughs> he thought that he's hot shit. Oh, Elon Musk. <laughs> Shine on you, crazy diamond. I mean, but again, I would say, like, that's what colors my review because I generally have a penchant for admiring people of this kind of nature where it's like whenever somebody pushes technology engineering uh philosophy science art to a certain limit yeah so i mean like say something like bohemian rhapsody mm -hmm. is like okay yeah we all know freddie mercury can sing and nothing stopped him from being an amazing singer well i mean like the except for the aids so apart from the aids and like <laughs> and uh, the ego and yeah and that one record producer who like was only a minor speed bump onto his like exactly but in the grand scheme of things like he was literally if you removed him from the movie it wouldn't have affected yeah. my enjoyment of it 
But whereas, like, say something like Ford vs Ferrari, and you just see the amount of shit these people had to go through. Yeah, just like so much absolute bullshit. Like, most of it was utterly unnecessary. And then, like, even the the first round was like, okay, Ken Miles, you're not you're not joining us in the first race in Daytona. Yeah, I'm gonna get McLaren in, and he's like, all right, and he's like, and I would say that right. It's um, what I'm trying to say is it is designed for guys like me where it is like yeah it, it definitely plays the cards in a certain way that i appreciate and it does it extremely well and i think if anything james mangold as a director uh he is definitely like the man's man director for the time being because what he did with logan for sure you know and what he did with uh, four of us furry and i'm really interested to see what he does next he's one of those directors where i spend most of the time not really thinking about his movies but I mean, I did you see treat into humor yes that was also a really good western. Yeah, so it's like, I would say, like, I, I wouldn't call him maybe, like, the, the John Ford of this era. I mean, though I do want to see his version of The Searchers, or maybe something even bigger, like Rio Grande. Possibly, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, like, after, after how much money for this Friday made, I wouldn't be surprised if someone let him do it. Yeah, I don't want him to do comic book franchise movies anymore. And no. I think it's right. he's the kind of guy who treats, I think that's what I especially enjoyed about this film. It's like, the way he treated Logan with respect. Yeah. And you can see how he treated like these characters with respect. And yes, I do have to admit that there are the obvious emotional schmaltzy moments. Which, I mean, yeah. It's kind of necessary because you wanted to have your, your emotional impulse or expulsion. Because it's like, as much as it's cheesy, that final scene where Ken Miles slows down and the three cars go through. But the thing is, it's cheesy, it actually happened. And I know, and it's like, <laughs> It was done in a way that wasn't like, you know, it didn't look like historical footage and there they are, these three Ford cars coming through. It's like, you see the motivation, you see Ken Miles coming to terms with like his legacy. Yeah. And it's that, that lovely moment where he, the, he broke his own record at Le Mans. Yeah. And it, instead, it's like, it's about a man growing up. It's a, yeah, it's a man who uh, he realized like, I achieved my perfect lap. Actually, I don't need to prove anything anymore. I get and That's what I loved about it. It's yeah. basically, especially any film where, or in any circumstance, I'm not even going to say about men, where it's like, here's somebody who does something and that's it. You're the greatest of all time. Yeah. You know, we can't deny your achievement. And I guess if it's done in a way that's, I would say, classy, I would say this movie is kind of classy. It is. Despite how unclassy the characters are. Well, I mean, that, that's kind of a charm, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you, you enjoy having your, your blue-collar working-class uh, Brit being an absolute asshole to people around him. <laughs> it's like, it, it was just it was fun watching him, like, go to like, the vice president of Ford and saying, here's the fucking shit car, and just walks off. Like, <laughs> yes, thank you for doing what everyone wants to do. <laughs> True that. And, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean... I don't know. It's not totally a working class movie, but oh, it's definitely not. This is definitely like watching millionaires dick around. True that. But it's like, see, but that's only a small segment of it because most yeah. of the time we're just focusing on here's engineers and uh, race car drivers and just mechanics. Is like, we need to make it lighter. We need to make it heavier. It's starting to take off at 140, and that stuff fascinates me. It's like. Well, what's the science in that? And then they're explaining it in a ways, especially that scene where they rip out the computer. Yeah. What do we need? Some wool and some scotch tape. Yeah, and then you there can, it is. You can just like see the airflow by <laughs> looking through some binoculars. Uh, he's right. At 140, you know, it starts to lift. It's like, oh, that's cool. You know, I love shit like that. So yeah, all like the first part where he's like, just try this car for 30 minutes, and he comes back like, it's fucking awful. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it looked fine to me. Wow, I really don't know my cars anymore. Mm, well, yeah, especially here in Singapore, I can't afford one. 
Oh yeah, or, or if you can, like you can't fucking drive it until you go to Malaysia. True that. Mm. Yeah, I would love to do that. Uh, go down to Pasir Gudang and just try the laps again. <laughs> Still not allowed to drive. Don't ask. Uh, They'll take an entire podcast to explain. Sure. Anyway, so uh, I guess we should do final reviews unless there's any last niggle you want to say. Mm. You asked me like, what? How could this movie be made better? It's kind of lean. I don't know how you can make it better, but the problem is that it's a very well-made movie which has a lot to say but it didn't like change my life or like yeah i I don't think it was set up to do uh, yeah Yeah. it was just meant to tell like a very fascinating story which is actually very omanaki i would say Hmm. like very much like uh this is like here's a a snapshot in history it's a nerd movie but for history nerds for car nerds and history nerds to kind of like share a moment like oh this was a fun little moment which has mass appeal somehow but it like because of all the other shit that came out at the same time. It was either this, Charlie's Angels, The Good Liar. Yeah. Like, this movie was number one until Frozen 2 arrived. Which is truly astounding. You can't fight that juggernaut. Yeah, well, yeah, no one can. Like I Because think... every parent took their kid to watch it this weekend. <laughs> yes, like, even, like, people my age went to see Frozen. Yeah, I'm not of that demographic. I'm fine. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. I would say this, right. Uh, this is one of the few biopics that I've seen in a long time that I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, I mean, like, Bohemian Rhapsody was fine. Rocketman was kind of terrible. Bohemian F- uh, Rhapsody was redeemed by the Wembley scene. Everything else... I thought that was the, the worst part because it became the obvious, like, oh, we have to do, the, we have to recreate it. And then when I learned that, oh, what, Remy Malek, right? Yeah. Oh, he didn't sing it. Well, I mean, I think that would be a, a tough ask, especially with those fucking ventures in. Yeah, and I do understand that, like, not only do you need to portray uh, Freddie Mercury, you gotta sing just like him. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. That All happened. right, <laughs> that's not easy to do. Like, considering, I, like, a recording of Freddie Mercury did more to, like, get a crowd going than fucking Green Day at one of their tours. Final score. I would definitely give this seven and a half. Almost an eight, but there's... I would say because it's historically, I wouldn't say accurate, but it's based on historical events. Yeah. I mean, if they had to over-dramatize a few things, it might have kind of denigrated the integrity of the film. Yeah. But also at the same time, like there's there's something about it that felt that could have been streamlined a bit more. But it's, it's very hard for me to, to say. Yeah. Though I would say this, right? Why I gave it 7.5, almost an 8. And I don't even give 8s. <laughs> yeah. It's basically... Because they packed in so much. Yeah. And like in, in, for me, I would have thought like, okay, some of this could have been done easily in montage. Or some of this could have been just like maybe flashbacks to newsreels or like... Uh, I mean, as cheesy as that sounds, it would have definitely made the film shorter, but I don't think better. Uh, for me, it's an 8. Um, I think this is this is how you do a historical biopic well. I would say this also about Fort Horse Ferrari. It's going to be the, the kind of movie that appears on Netflix and then like... Even 5 years, 10 years down the line watch it and then it's I think it'll still be enjoyable yeah I, I think it's like you can watch it I would say watch it on the big screen because like oh my god especially the racing scenes yeah it's like the closest you'll get to actually going to Lamar and being pit side when they drive I past I did not know you had to run to your car yeah it, because it's <laughs> that's such a weird rule <laughs> because it's French of course they've got weird fucking <laughs> rules which make no goddamn sense is Le Mans still going on? yeah it's so still like it's still like the granddaddy of endurance races Okay, so it's the World Cup of the of the race of racing. Kind of, it's like it, you. It's the Boston Marathon. Yeah, it's the al- biggest, although, the most engrueling one. Yeah, although it's not necessarily the drivers who are important; it's the car manufacturers. Okay. And recently, it's been Audi actually that's been dominating. German. Yeah, they won with a diesel car a few years ago, which was like Jesus first time fuck. ever. Yeah. 
You know what I want to see now, right? Yeah. The sequel, which is where Elon Musk has the first electric car win Le Mans. I think we're not far off. They've already got a Formula E circuit. Because what I heard about those, what's those ridiculous cars, those Teslas, right? Yeah. They go like not to 60 in two seconds. Oh, they do. My, <laughs> They're I, just ridiculous. And what freaks people out is how quiet they are. I've driven one. Yeah. It's terrifying. Like, when I went for a test drive, I put my foot halfway down and I would it's like pushed into the back of my seat and you don't hear like the burning pistons or the engine rev it just just goes fast right yeah it's like <laughs> which is why I kind of wish they had like sound uh, pa- sound uh, packages that you could buy oh they do that's what I heard it's I, like, want, I want a pod racing sound uh, sound <laughs> <laughs> I want one. I want that too. Yeah, I want that sound for the Cybertruck I eventually hope to afford one day. Just when it goes down the street. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's cheap in Europe, like 40,000. Okay, I need to move to Europe. What? <laughs> no, no, I mean, when, I, when I go there eventually, I'll have one. You'll be having your Cybertruck? <laughs> yes, and I'll send you pictures of me driving in it. You know, you need, right? What? No, you need the, the, the complete edition, which has the, the Cybertruck ATV that, <laughs> that comes off the back, like the mini pod. Yeah. It's like, that is so fucking bad, man. It is. <laughs> I can't help but like, look at that thing. For when I like crash into the side of a mountain after being chased. But you chased. still need to chase after the bad guy. Then you yeah. get on your mini version. It's like, this. Can I ask you one simple question? Yeah, sure. When you saw the Cybertruck, did you immediately immediately imagine what it would look like with machine guns and rockets? Yes. Me too. (laughs) I couldn't help it. And the first thing, the second thought I had was like, oh yeah, I really am looking forward to Cyberpunk 2077, huh? (laughs) Because it's exactly the same thing. That is is pure marketing, maybe. Hmm. Possibly. Well, it made a shit ton of money from pre-orders. You know who's going to be in the ads, right? Keanu. Of course. You know what I mean? He's going to... He just needs to go... You're breathtaking. He drives <laughs> off into the sunset. <laughs> and on that note, Last King fans, Ford vs Ferrari, heavily recommended. For Go sure. and check it out. If you don't want to see Charlie's Angels, or if you don't want to see The Good Liar, or if you... Or Frozen 2. Or if you want to leave your kids at the Frozen 2 cinema and you want to go and watch the, the man movie, definitely Ford vs Ferrari. Uh... So that concludes this episode. Absolutely. <laughs> Next week, we'll go back to video games, I think. I guess so. Or maybe... We'll run out of ideas and or maybe Jumanji. Pull something Fuck out it. of it. We're we'll gonna see. review Jumanji? Why not? Sure. All so right. on that note <laughs> On that very I can mix notes, this has been uh the eccentric Tom GT forty. Oh, you took the GT forty? God yeah. damn it. And I shall be uh Mr. Mustard in the dining room with the candelabra. <gasps> Signing out.